Ruth, chapter 4, we finish up our study of the book of Ruth today. We'll jump into 1 Samuel next week, Lord willing. Ruth, chapter 4, we'll... Uh, Let's just stand and read. Let's read a section of it. We won't read the whole chapter, but let's read uh, down a little ways into chapter 4. Now Boaz had gone up to the gate, sat down there, and behold, the Redeemer of whom Boaz had spoken came by. So Boaz said, Turn aside, friend, sit down here. And he turned aside, sat down, and he took ten men of the elders of the city and said, Sit down here. So they sat down. Then he said to the Redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling a parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. So I thought I would tell you of it and say, Buy it in the presence of those sitting here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But you will not tell me that I may know, for there is no one besides you to redeem it, and I come after you. And he said, This is the other man, I will redeem it. Then Boaz said, The day that you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also require Ruth the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. Then the Redeemer said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption yourself, for I cannot redeem it. So we kind of come to the climax of the book and what we have been... Uh, Knowing was going to happen all along. Um, and, uh, just by way of review, last week we saw, uh, of course we looked more closely at Naomi sending Ruth at night to lay by the, to uncover the feet of Boaz and then lay at his feet until he woke up and then basically asked him to redeem. And it kind of left it with, well, I will redeem you, don't worry about this, but there is another one close kind that must be dealt with first. That's what we just read with Boaz dealing with that other redeemer. And so we saw how it's a beautiful picture of how we come to faith to Christ for redemption. We also saw the redemption didn't just involve paying off her debts, and of course we just read that, did we not? But also a marriage reunion. Now if there was no marriage, no woman and widow involved, it could be just paying off the debt. But in this case it was both, right? She was brought under his authority and care. That's alone, this alone ends, as far as I'm concerned, the lordship debate. Uh, salvation then is being translated from one king and one kingdom into another king and kingdom. You, when you're, if you're truly saved, you don't stay in Satan's kingdom. You are transformed, right? You're given a new heart. So any idea that I can come to Boaz as a, a someone to save me, to feed me, you might say, but I'm not actually united to him in marriage. Or, of course, obviously we're talking about Christ. Those who think that I can trust Jesus as Savior, but not Lord. Uh, there's a book in the Old Testament that repudiates, repudiates all that. That's the book of Ruth. So, last week we saw then Ruth approach Boaz and ask him to redeem her and her inheritance. And while it is an unusual story, we dealt with some of the commentators kind of seeing this as kind of a whole, just a very unfortunate, almost seedy story. Uh, in 
some see it as something less than upright with Naomi and Ruth. We, I think, properly see Boaz very concerned that things are being done in a godly fashion, the way he reacts to all this, and to, to see this really as, to criticize it as unfortunate decisions by Naomi and Ruth, I think would, you could only do that if you just refuse to see that this is really speaking about Jesus Christ and, and this misses the whole point. Now, I think this says something though about living by faith. Have all of us at one point or another been so afraid to miss what we perceive to be God's will that we might jump the gun and do something either wrong or something that you're not sure about because you have, because you have, a door has opened, something, you know, has happened and you think, oh, this, I've got to do this even though I don't have any real confidence, uh, either from the word of God, you know, or, or not, you know, so it's you do it anyway, because you think you're serving the Lord, but you have not waited until you have a, a, a clear word from the, the, the Bible. We force things instead of acting quickly. And, and I'm not talking about, I learned early on in our marriage, you know, well, Stan and I both learned early on, when you kind of act quickly, you know, you, someone calls you back to but back when you actually talk to telemarketers on the phone, you get talked into something instead of, I need to think about this. You get talked into it and then you see yourself and also yourself right. We've all done that. But I'm not talking about just really so much about that, although that would be a, maybe an example. But when we force things or act quickly instead of waiting on the Lord to work things out, we usually, it usually doesn't work very well. Um, Boaz knew it was his duty to marry Ruth. So he could have let there be compromised the situation that we read about last week, and then he would have had to marry Ruth. Um, but that would not have been living by faith, right? Just because you know something that should be that way doesn't mean that it gives you the opportunity or the excuse to do something that you shouldn't do. And so we should we never have to compromise to get the Lord's work done. I'm going to have to take this so long because even though it's cool of this. doesn't need us to help him by running headlong into things. So let me just, you know, kind of explain what I'm talking about here. There's a couple of good uh, quotes that I think speak to this. Never mistake temptation for opportunity. In other words, uh, just because something ha- happens, a door seems to open or an opportunity arises it might be the Lord testing you. So just because you can do something that you think might be okay doesn't mean you should. And so there's no opportunity, sure sign of God's will, right? So just because the door is open doesn't mean you're supposed to walk through it. And so it, uh, this, this this last uh, quote, though, I think is kind of interesting. Providence is our Bible. In other words, uh some people, and again, I think something we have to, we all have to watch, assume that because things are working out a certain way, that's the Lord leading me in to do this or to do that. 
And what I'm saying here, the point of all this, is that this is this is where we learn God's will. Living by faith is obeying this. Living by faith is not saying, well, I'm just going to do this and trust God to take care of it. When you really have no confidence that that's the right thing to do, for instance, uh, you know, in the North, you could do it not in the middle sense. Uh, that's what it's talking about here. Providence is a diary is something where you write how your day unfolded. And that's what providence is. It's our diary. It, it's how things unfolded. It's not our Bible. This is the Bible. Circumstances are. That open door is not. It might be something you are to go through if you have weighed it by God's word. But if you have not, then it might just be uh, lead to all kinds of problems. So I thought it was kind of a, a neat little way to think of it. Providence is our diary, not our Bible. Any, any questions that I just completely muddled that up or uh, does that make at least a little bit of sense? And I think we can't, we got to be careful here, we, we can also mess ourselves up. If we notice here how Bo, Boaz, or how poised Boaz is after awakening in the dead of night, and he's civil and clear-headed. And, and I don't know, maybe some of us need uh, several cups of coffee in the morning to even begin to be clear-headed. But I, I thought it was neat. He woke up in, in, in a very... Uh, Unusual situation, right? And yet he's thinking about the law, thinking about the reputation, thinking about what needs to be done. And that, that takes training for us to be able to, in, in adverse circumstances, in the, in the first thing in the morning, to be civil, to be clear-headed, to be godly, to be Christ-like. It doesn't happen without some effort. It doesn't happen without thinking things through and training ourselves in godliness and read about <clears throat> and uh, so there's never to be a time, day or night, in which we aren't focused on being Christians and loving each other. Sleep depri- deprivation and hunger notwithstanding. Someone said that we should never lose our spiritual commitment. Right? We should always be found. We should always be controlled by the Holy Spirit. And we all know when we aren't. When we get ourselves, when, when we get frazzled, when, when all of a sudden, you know, you have a day where everything starts to get piled up on you. How easy it is to get in the flesh, to, to just you know forget what's going on here, to forget that, that that this is God's providence. It's not my Bible. It's not it's not an excuse to react wrongly. It is, uh, you know, and we we can really sometimes hurt each other doing stuff like that, or put ourselves in difficult situations. So Ruth and Naomi have come and cast their future on Boaz. Only he can help. They must watch and see what he is going to do. They are dependent upon somebody else for their salvation, as it were, right? It kind of reminds me of the song we know very well. Luther's song, Did we, in our own strength, confide our striving would be losing? We're not the right man on our side. The man of God so chooses. Clearly, you can see how it can apply here. Does ask that may be Christ Jesus it is he, or Sabaoth his name, from age to age the same, uh, and he must win battle. And so uh, that's what they, you know, when, when God saves you, he brings you to that point where you realize that he, the Lord, is the only one who is going to be able to fix.
so this chapter begins with Boaz confronting, that is chapter 4, confronting the other would-be redeemer. That's why I titled this uh, lesson, Two Kinsmen, but only one redeemer, right? There's two who could redeem, but only one is going to redeem. And so he starts off by saying when he walks by, first right there we immediately see that what we've seen before, and behold the Redeemer. It, it, it's uh, reminding us that hey, uh, we need to think about what's going on here. The Redeemer, Boaz, the front, comes by. The Lord is really at the, at the end orchestrating this, not uh, Boaz as such. And then it says, turn aside, friend, sit here. Now, the, the word friend here is, uh, you know, you read in different translations, it's, uh, you can see it's a little maybe difficult to put it in the way we would, uh, deal with it. Uh, the KJB has ho such a one. Again, not, that's not maybe the way we would, would talk, especially to a stranger. Uh, but I think the idea here is, is he's saying, hey you. You know, it, it's not what, if there's confrontation here, it's not a, it's something, there's business here, it's a serious thing. Uh, I, I remember when I was studying this, I thought, how such a I looked at the, how the KJV did it, and I thought, I've heard that before, and I remember that I had a friend in Wisconsin, my, my best friend in Wisconsin, back in the, when I was in my 20s, when he would see me, because <clears throat> he lived in a different city, we would see each other maybe once a month or so, and he would a lot of times treat me with Oh, such a one. And I really never thought about it. I was, you know, because this is a pure birth. I wasn't KGB anyway. And, and I just, you know, didn't really think too much about it. And then, you know, Sinner said it. I was thinking, well, I wonder if that's where he got that from. So I texted him. I said, well, that, did you just read me like that? He said, yeah. So I said, well, after, you know, 40 years, I finally get what you're saying. But uh, anyways, so I thought it was kind of funny, but. Uh, this is, there's conflict here a little bit. There's business to be taken care of. It's not really friendship. So, you know, we sometimes would, when we address the stranger, we sometimes say friend. Maybe hoping that we'll be received well, you know, but we know technically you're not, not friends, right? But that's probably what's going on there. At least the way the USB does it. But what does this, this other, uh, would-be redeemer represent? Well, he has, he has first opportunity to redeem, and I think that, I guess some people maybe would say, well, it's Satan. Uh, I, I don't know about that. I, I, I didn't think of it as law. Boaz, uh, is Christ who can do what the law cannot do. The law has first, you know, we're kind of born under the condemnation of the law. We have the opportunity, maybe technically seeking to come to Christ through the law, but that's not going to happen. Uh, and so the, uh, you got ten witnesses, all this, the law really is part of this whole thing. If all this is being done according to the Mosaic law, for sure. <clears throat> no redemption is going to take place by bypassing the law. And of course, Jesus had to deal with the law, so is not Boaz in one way or another dealing with the law, taking care of first things first. He was born under the law, before he could redeem us, he had to go through all the different things that a Jewish man had to go through. Right up until the hanging on the tree. And so the other man tells us he, or tells Boaz, he would buy the land if it was his with no strings attached. But if he had to support Ruth and Naomi, 
and then hand it over to the firstborn, well, he didn't. He doesn't seem to have the means or at least the inclination to do that. And it, 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 the way this, at least in the text, it doesn't seem that he has the means. That would put his jeopardy. If I had to support these two women and uh, then give this land back, that that would ruin me financially. So that seems to be the excuse here. So we see this other potential redeemer as being weaker than Boaz, right? Unable to do what Boaz can do. And it made me think, of course, of Romans 3, 8, for God, and with the law, and by the flesh, could not do By sending his own son into the light of the sinful flesh, for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. So Jesus has, is able to do in, in his person what the law could not do. And of course the reason is because the strength of the law resides in the flesh and our ability to keep it. That's the whole problem, of course, with the law. As Paul said, there's nothing wrong with the law. It's just that it was a sinful man uh, just could not do anything with it. Uh, there's uh, the old story of the village idiot who would ride a stick horse everywhere he went. And one day uh, somebody asked him to go to a neighboring village and run an errand. So he did, and he kept back later that day, and I said, well, how'd it go? He said, well, it went fine. He said, I, I rode my horse everywhere I went, but it's almost like I was running it myself. Well, of course, that's the whole problem. The law is like that stick horse. It's only as good as your strength, and our strength as sinners is useless. So the other man, he's added a prophet. And what you immediately see here, he really has no concern for Ruth. Sure, they want to marry her. It's all about profit. It's all about work. It's all about marriage. And it didn't work. It wasn't adding up. Because he's not, not living by the principle of love. Of course, that's law. Right? Love is the fulfillment of the law. So the main point, though, is he's unable to do the job. And so, unlike Boaz, he has neither the means nor the inclination to redeem. So verse 5 says, Boaz said, the day you buy the field, this is what you must do, and that puts him off. And of course, what sets Boaz apart is that Boaz has both the means and the inclination to do what the law demands. And so here is a man who's left unnamed. Boaz is the one remembered. Just as in the first chapter you have two women who are given opportunity to commit, only one does, the other turns back. So now we have two men given opportunity to commit to redemption, only one does, the other one does not. And so it's kind of like we illustrate this, it's kind of like if I had a, a debt that amounted to several million dollars, there's no way on earth I would ever be able to pay it off in this lifetime, right? Um, and, and of course, that's what sin is. It's a debt that we cannot repay. It's an infinite debt against uh, the infinite God. It's regardless of you know, whatever religion out there, you cannot earn any way a, a heaven, eternal life, right? So I could go to my dad and say, Dad, I need you to pay off this debt. My dad loves me. He would uh, be inclined to help. But my dad's not going to pay off that debt any more than I'm going to pay off that debt. 
So I could say, well, that's not going to work. So I invite an email to Elon Musk. But I know he's got the means to pay off the debt. But Elon Musk doesn't know me Adam and can talk because he doesn't have the inclination, right? Jesus is the one person in the universe who has both the means to pay off the debt because he is the God-man. He's perfectly righteous. He is the eternal God. His death becomes sufficient to pay the debt of sin for all. But, also, he operates by the principle of love. First of all, to the Father, he is inclined, he, he loves to do the Father's will. In fact, he can only do the Father's will because he is part of the God, triune God, right? And he loves us. So he's inclined and he has the uh, sufficiency to do it. And so, uh, it's a perfect example here think, of Jesus Christ. Well, we we stopped in verse 7, but um, it says, Now this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging. To confirm an action, the one drew off his sandal and gave it to the other. This was the manner of attesting in Israel. Now, it had changed a little bit. Uh, since if you go back and you read when they took off the sandal, what would happen is if a widow went to a man and asked basically to redeem her, to marry her, and he refused, you know, he was not interested in raising uh, seed from his brother or whatever, however it worked. She would take off her sandal and whack him across the face with it or hit him with it because he was refusing to do his, his duty. So it was a sign of disrespect. You're not doing what you should do. Here, you see, it, it kind of had toned down a little bit. He takes off his own shoe. Basically, didn't hit anybody with it because that wasn't really the issue. Boaz wasn't bad at it, obviously, too. But, but this man, this other redeemer, takes off his shoe, and it, he was basically admitting, I'm not going to fulfill my duty here, and that it's okay for Boaz to do it. Uh, I was reading about, and one rabbi said that, that in situations like this, I'm not exactly sure, you know, it'd be interesting to see how this carries over today, since I'm pretty sure that Jews no longer practice polygamy, right? So, but in, in situations like this of redemption, there's, the ceremony still uh, goes on, but they would use a handkerchief or a veil uh, instead of taking off the sandal. So, interesting how that's kind of changed over the years. But that's what's going on here. So, the elders are witnesses to this redemption, just like the apostles witnessed the resurrection, and they give a blessing here. They say... Um, Down in verse uh, 11, that all the people who were at the gate of the elders said, We are witnesses. May the Lord make the women who is coming into your house, like Rachel and Leah, who together build up the house of Israel. May you act worthily in Epaphra and be renowned in Bethlehem. And may your house be like the house of Perez, who Tamar bore to Judah. Because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young women, woman. Well, that's interesting because it, it's pretty obvious why you would bless them with Rachel and Leah because they uh, were the wives. They didn't mention the other two handmaids or concubines all together, but but they were basically referring to uh, may you be fruitful 
and uh, they they refer back to the women who from whom Israel came from, as it were. But then they say that you be like you have to be like Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah. Well, why bring Tamar? That you know awful situation where Tamar plays the harlot order. But now there's one reason you can see that is because it was the Levite system that Tamar was trying to get. You know, her husband died. She, and, and, uh, they, you know, the person who should have redeemed her wasn't, so she fools, tricks Judah, and I think trick, you know, if he didn't go into harlots, it would not have been a problem, but he, she had the child with Judah, her father-in-law, I believe that was, and, uh, and that produces Perez. So why bring Perez into that whole thing into the mix? Well, perhaps again, it, it's because of its similarity with a Levite marriage that they do that. Um, but also, what did come from Perez was the tribe of Judah, and Judah was the largest, the most prolific of the tribes. So they maybe were referencing the fact that may you have but you have a large offspring, just like Israel and Judah are. And I think that probably would make the most sense. But they start with Judah's son. And, of course, by the, at the end, in verse 18, they, they kind of flesh that out. Now, these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron and so forth, all the way down to Boaz, who fathered Obed. Obed fathered Jesse, and Jesse fathered David. So, you, you're, you're basically, what, what we've got here, again, maybe why they refer to Tamar, I'm not sure about, but what we have here is a dot in the whole series of dots that we're being told to connect. We've been told about Abraham and Abraham, through Abraham, was, the Messiah was going to come, and so we're seeing all the different ways that takes place, and in Ruth, we're seeing one of the dots that we connect to see how Judah, all the way back to Genesis, was told a king would come from Judah, and uh, seeing all, but of course it's connected with a fleshly king, a type and uh, ancestor of the king. And so we're seeing a dot uh, being connected here in Ruth. And then lastly, notice how God's people always see a sign of blessing from God in having children. They don't ever see a blessing from God in not having children. Usually, of course, in, in the Old Testament context, not having children was a God was mad at you or God was not blessing you in some way. Now, in context, we understand today it might be God's will that you don't have children and that's fine. God will bless you if you're faithful to him, that's all that matters. You'll get God's blessing. But, you know, it, it, what we should see, of course, is that children, and under normal circumstances, are a blessing from God, right? And nothing shows one's heart of rebellion and selfishness than when they see children as a financial burden or messing up your plan. And I think we have to, as we have done Every once in a while, you have to connect this to Romans 1 and what's going on today. The aversion to marriage, and especially having children in marriage, is a 
is connected to Romans 1 in that in Romans they are rebelling against uh, God's order by taking their humanity and perverting it to something other than it was intended and it, it was through uh, intercourse and so intercourse is to produce among other things children and to pervert that and to say I don't children are an unnecessary consequence I don't want them then you are rebelling against the created order rebelling against the Lord children our lives given by God so that we can share in raising them up unto the Lord. Lives that we can influence like no one else. And no sin is greater than removing them from the womb like cancerous tissue. Know anything about what led to Roe versus Wade to begin with and to the abortion industry. It is that women cast off, just like Romans says, maybe in a different context, cast off their roles, woman was created, first of all, to be a suitable uh, helper for her husband to bear children and to nurture them. And as we've said before, that couldn't be a more important role. In, in the last century, culminating in the 60s with the feminist movement, they said, we will be as our husbands. We will not be hindered by God's role in raising up children. And so they um, cast that off. And uh, they said we, we will prepare. And, and saying that it's wrong for women to work. As long as the first thing God ordained. And that is to bear children. And to uh, raise their children. Take care of the children. Is done. And uh, that was cast off. And don't make any mistake about it. Abortion. And Roe versus Wade was a result of women wanting to work unhindered, to to live in to to be able to do what anything a man does. Again, you're casting off your role. It's uh, and, and 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 so that if a if I become pregnant, that would hinder my job performance or being able to do this job. And so I want to be able to abort it when I want. That that's where it came from. And you see how that. Gender confusion in the picture. Your confusion. No, you were not created to be like your husband. And it continued to snowball gender confusion that we have today. So, as I said before, nothing happens in a vacuum. Right? What we're seeing today is not because uh, all of a sudden something's changed. It's because systematically preachers have failed to do their job in the churches. Parents have failed to do their job in the home. And they, um, and it's what led to what we have today. So verse 13 says, Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife and went into her and Lord gave her conception. She bore a son. And then we notice that here that uh, Naomi is kind of become, it was about Naomi kind of in the beginning. Now it's really about Naomi now. And the fact that in, in chapter one she's fruitless and now she is fruitful. Verse 14, the women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a Redeemer. Obviously, it's, it was true of Ruth, but it, Ruth, we see, this is really in one sense about Naomi, right? She's benefiting from all this as well. But it's calling her 
grandchild, Obed, a redeemer. The Lord has not left this day a redeemer, and may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age for your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. So Obed is called a uh, redeemer, her, her redeemer. And so um, we see Naomi here. Her fortunes have changed. She is now transformed from sorrow and poverty to joy in uh, having all her needs supplied. And so Obed means servant. And so while Boaz obviously it was a, her redeemer, in reality it was going to be through Obed and his identity. I think the right word, right? Um, ultimately ending in Jesus, who is her redeemer. So it was Obed who's going to be her true redeemer. That is Christ who is going to come through Obed. Uh, Boaz, in this sense, then was never the one in the book of Ruth, right? So uh, just a, a great little book. So much there that teaches us about what salvation is all about and how the Bible is clearly um, the Word of God. It, it's a, a book that's inspired that, that we can trust in that these things, no one can just write this and without knowing, you know, whoever wrote the book of Ruth had to know that Jesus was going to come and do what he was going to do. How, how, would, they, how would they know to do this, you know? So, just one of those things that confirms everything to us. So next week we will we we are introduced here the last word in, in Ruth uh, to David, and so we'll begin a study on the life of David next week. But of course, we will first of all study the circumstances that led to his kingship, which begins with Anna and Samuel and Eli. So those are things we'll look at over the next. Any questions or top story, Lord, that is a count of something that actually happened historical record, Lord, that is so rich with Jesus for us. Thank you, Lord, that inspired it. Pray that you might help us to grow in our faith, understanding of your word, 